Monday, November 28th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm here to announce a slight change of format for The Gist. Today, we become Pacific Island Journal. Three big headlines every day from island nations such as Fiji and Kiribati. Neighbors in the sense that they are two countries closer to each other than almost any other countries, but not in the sense that they're close. They're about 2,000 miles apart. Three big Fijian Kiribati news items. You know, a lot of people think it's Kiribati because that's the way it's spelled, but it's actually Kiribati. And that's item number one. It's actually pronounced Kiribati. Item number two, New York Times headline, Kiribati relied on foreign judges, then removed them. So Kiribati just appointed its first native-born or I-Kiribati judge. That's the demonym of those from Kiribati, which, according to the Times, to some was an historic moment. But to others, it was contentious. I'm going to side with the others because to get the new judge into the role, the government tossed out all the existing judges. Not just because they were foreigners, which we'll get to in a second, though that was one of their justifications, anti-colonialism, but because these judges were ruling against the government. Now, Kiribati, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, Samoa, these are very small countries. Kiribati has 121,000, Samoa has 10,000. Vanuatu has 11,000, so it's just not enough people, enough members of the populace to be schooled in their fairly complex law, and so they often will import, say, retired judges from New Zealand, or in the case of Kiribati, an Australian named David Lamborn, who was sitting on the high court. Everything was fine, but then, again, according to the Times, Mr. Lamborn said the appointment to the high court had been uncontroversial until his wife, Teresa Lamborn, a native of Kiribati, became the country's opposition leader in 2020. Well, yeah, it doesn't take a jurist of Solomonic wisdom to know that that is going to provoke some ire. He was tossed off the court. The court sided with him. He lodged a court appeal. He called what they did unconstitutional. The head of government said, I've got a way to settle this. All of you Australian, New Zealand judges, you're gone. We're going with local Kiribati's. There's no good answer, it would seem. And by the way, the reason that the opposition leader, Miss Tessie Lamborn, is opposing the government is that they want to become, I don't know if you want to say vassal states, but more closely aligned with China. So that would be probably, well, I don't know. I don't know local Kiribati politics. I do know Fijian politics. And so I bring you item number three. Remember, pronunciation of Kiribati was one. In our Pacific Island News headline, lawyer faces six months in prison in Fiji for pointing out a judge's minor typo. You'd think a typo in Fiji could be corrected in a jiffy. That was not the typo, Fiji to jiffy. This was in a court document, a Fijian judge, native Fijian, they they have a million people in Fiji, they don't have to import their judges, wanted to write injunction, instead twice wrote injection. So, This, of course, led to a bit of an injunction of confusion in the proceedings, if you know what I'm saying. But that wasn't the big problem. Richard Nadeau, one of the most senior lawyers in Fiji, pointed out the mistake, concluding with a thinking face emoji, he now faces up to six months in prison. Wow, could have been life if he used eggplant and poop. 
In other Fijian legal developments of non-typo-related sort, Biman Prasad, the leader of an opposition party, uh, Pacific Islands, bad place to lead opposition parties, is faced with two counts of insulting the modesty of a person after he greeted the wife of a former political colleague with a hug and a kiss on the cheek. Don't worry, the charges were dropped. But things are getting rather nasty in Fiji, a formerly very free country that now is being cracked down. Cracked down upon it as one would crack down upon a Kiribati Kiwi in judicial garb. We will be monitoring these events as news changes. Until then, please trust that I have given you a true injunction of knowledge as to Pacific Island news. On the show today, we stay international. In fact, we go to Qatar, where there's some soccer being played and, to my eyes, some video being misapplied. But first, Heather Knight is a San Francisco Chronicle columnist, the co-host of Total SF, the podcast, and to my mind, the person who keeps me sane and balanced when it comes to San Francisco. There's a lot of crazy news in San Francisco, and there's Heather Knight in the middle of it, like a latter-day Breslin or Royco saying, yeah, this is kind of crazy. She joins us next to talk about dysfunctional city government, murals, and crime in her city. Here's Heather Knight. So I was trying to cull the herd. You've probably been where I have been. So many subscriptions. All the Substacks plus the Disney Plus and the plus the Apple Plus and the HBO Max. And then I was looking at broadsheets and similar media. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Chicago Tribune, LA Times, San Francisco Chronicle. What do I cut out? So I decided Apple Plus, at least until Severance comes back. And I was between the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle. Okay, both are big papers covering the biggest state. But do I need both? How do I make my decision? And it just came down to this. Well, the San Francisco Chronicle has Heather Knight. So I'm still subscribed. <laughs> Goodbye, LA Times. You could earn your way back to my good graces. But Heather Knight is a columnist <laughs> and uh, so much more for the San Francisco Chronicle. She is a person who I would say looks at her city and loves her city, but isn't afraid to criticize her city and raise the voices of those with very valid complaints. I don't know. Maybe that makes her unpopular within her newsroom or some sectors of the city we're going to find out. Heather Knight, welcome to The Gist. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And I'm really glad you made the correct decision to keep the Chronicle over the LA Times. Right? <laughs> Big rivalry there. <laughs> and uh, they don't have you. So that's that. So where would you put your, I don't know, if someone vaguely understood what was going on in San Francisco, oh, aren't things a little crazy there? And don't they have fights over the school board about murals and recall their DA? So you have uh, a friend you haven't talked to since college and he or she asks you, Heather, where do you, what's going on in San Francisco and where do you stand on all this stuff? What would you say in a, in a nutshell? I would say the city is as beautiful as ever. We have great weather, great food, tons of great stuff to do. I love living here. But um, City Hall is dysfunctional. It's not working very well. Um, and I really believe in fighting for the city because it does have so many great attributes that are worth saving and promoting. And if we just had a more functional city government, we could be one of the most spectacular cities in the world. Is it dysfunctional in a certain direction, either ideological or otherwise? 
I think two main issues, it's really prioritized ideology over pragmatism and just getting things done. Um, when your kids are on Zoom for more than a year, year and a half, two years, and um, going through mental health problems and miserable, and the school board is talking every week for eight hours about murals and whether they should rename Abraham Lincoln High School, it just feels like, what are we talking about? We're not doing the, the core functions of what the school district or the city is supposed to be doing, educating kids, making sure buses arrive on time, um, making sure we can remodel our houses if we want. That's a whole separate issue. It takes years to get permits just to do the most simple things. But we just really need a city that provides the core functions of a government. So the ideology is what? Very progressive, very social justice oriented. Is that how you describe it? I think it's been pretty performative. Um, the school board was a classic example of let's talk about all this stuff that sounds good. But even when I analyzed that, you know, renaming schools, sure, there are definitely schools that are named after pretty terrible people, and maybe we should change some of them. But should we be spending meetings upon meetings upon meetings during a pandemic when kids are on Zoom at home not learning? Um, and then the way they did it was just looking at Wikipedia. They refused to have historians involved in the discussion, and they just decided on their own that there were 44 terrible people <laughs> that weren't worthy of having a school named after them. So it's performative over, you know, pragmatism and getting the job done of educating kids. The other issue is so much bureaucracy, like everything just takes so long, so much red tape that even when the city officials do say, yeah, this really doesn't make sense. It's just hard to cut through all of it. It's decades of those decisions. Yeah. I remember uh, from the school board issue, the it was especially galling, and here I am thousands of miles away, but for self-defined educators, the people in charge of the Board of Education, to criticize uh, one of the people that the school board was named after for, I don't know, the persecution or slaughter or something like that of the Penobscot Indians based on, what was the detail there? Just a Wikipedia entry that <laughs> right. they read backwards or wrong? It was all Wikipedia. One of my favorite anecdotes was um, there's a Roosevelt Middle School, and they didn't know whether it was Teddy Roosevelt or... Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but they just decided, well, either way, <laughs> it's bad. Let's change it. They didn't even know who they were talking about in some cases. So when you were writing this, and this is before we had a couple of data points of elections and of recalls, when you were weighing in for the San Francisco Chronicle and people weren't exactly sure where the average San Franciscan stood, were you getting a lot of blowback when you weighed in and criticized the decision-making process, say, of the school renamings? Oh, definitely. Um, of course, the school board members were angry and their followers and supporters were angry and called me racist and, you know, lobbed a lo whole lot of words at me. But I got so much more response from just regular parents, regular families, some teachers just saying, thank you so much for highlighting these issues. I'm so frustrated. And finally, like someone sharing it's like you're in my head. And, and finally, my point of view is out there. So I try to remember I'm not writing for the politicians or the elected officials. They're not my audience. It's probably good if they're mad at me. Um, I'm writing for just the regular people of San Francisco. So here's my question about when you get criticism from politicians, a columnist, a good municipal columnist loves that. Like it, it's, it's proof of concept, yeah. right? The powerful are angry at you. But 
I don't know if this is true, but in the time that you've been doing that, has it changed a little? Were you maybe a little more nervous than you would have been years ago just by having people angry at you and calling you racist? Uh, this is this is a very serious charge. These are fraught times, and this is San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, I was nervous, but I just try to remember it's my job, and I just keep going back to that same theme of I'm just writing for um, average San Franciscans. And I also try to remind myself, um, I... I think I'm pretty middle of the road for San Francisco. I'd be like totally crazy liberal anywhere else, but I'm pretty right in the middle here. So I think that's probably good. Um, And so I kind of piss off both sides on alternate basis. So as long as I'm kind of spreading the anger around, then I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Yes. And remember, in San Francisco, both sides are the far, far left and the pretty far left. Those are the the both sides. (laughs) And as you wrote in a recent column, San Franciscans are understandably frustrated about the state of the city and angry at the people who run it or fail to run it. Um, But they appear to have selected two more moderate members of the Board of Supervisors. They appear to have picked middle-of-the-road district attorney Brooke Jenkins. They are still, this was your point, they're still a liberal city. It is still a city that is firmly within any definition of progressives. It's just not dysfunctionally liberal, which is, I guess, what the elections have shown that sort of the things you've been writing about have been borne out. Right. A lot of city officials were really nervous that voters are in an angry mood. And when voters are angry, they tend to vote no on everything. But there were some really key um, financial measures, especially one for Muni, our public transportation system, that if that didn't pass, that would have just been a disaster. I'm a huge public transit fan, love the cable cars and the buses. And I was like, you know, to my readers, we really need to pass this. I know you're mad at everybody, but we need buses. We need a way to get around the city. We need safety measures for pedestrians, all that good stuff, paratransit for disabled people. Um, So that did pass narrowly, but um, polls were showing it was going to fail. So that kind of thing, like we elected more moderate candidates, but also put our money where our mouth is and said, if you can start running the city in a more functional way, we will fund it. We will give you the money for schools and libraries and buses and all the stuff that a good city needs. Tell me about your writing on crime. We've talked about your writing on the school board. And I think to some extent that the school board stuff is comparatively low-hanging fruit. I would say that the vast, vast, vast majority of people hearing about naming a school and getting the idea wrong because you misread Wikipedia, that's just totally (laughs) indefensible. But when it comes to crime... There are impassioned activists, let's say, who really do want to do something like defund the police or prosecute fewer people or um, end jails. And, you know, your columns, I think, rebut this idea. So tell me about what flack you've taken or what stances you've taken or stories you've elevated. Yeah, um, all Chronicle journalists know that when we write about that subject, we just have to kind of brace ourselves because the response is going to just be wild and um, personal and a lot of attacks either way. People are just so impassioned on the subject. Um, so we had a um, very progressive district attorney, Chase Bodine. Uh, he His tenure overlapped mostly with the pandemic. So it was hard to judge. Everything changed during the pandemic. It was hard to judge crime rates because just life was so different at that time. Um, but home burglaries did go way up and people were feeling um, unsafe in their homes. Crime also spread beyond the Uh, core downtown neighborhoods into residential areas um, and the wealthier areas were seeing break-ins into their homes, you know, sometimes as they were sleeping or stuff stolen out of their garage or they just felt people, there was a sense of not being safe. And um, a lot of people agree with uh, 
what the DA was promoting. You know, we don't want mass incarceration. We do want to be fair to people, give second chances. Um, and, you know, juveniles should not be prosecuted as adults in the vast majority of cases. Um, that kind of thing. No cash bail, stuff like that. But um, I think people felt that he wasn't hearing that people were unsafe. He just kept pointing to the data. Data shows crime is down. There wasn't a empathy or a, um, I understand what you're feeling. A big point of contention was fentanyl dealing. I write a lot about that. There's these open air drug markets um, that are so blatant. You can see cops standing just a few feet away watching as these guys are selling homeless people um, fentanyl and bodies are laying on the sidewalks. And it's just a horrible thing that people feel isn't being addressed. And that was not a priority for him. So um, he was recalled in June. And then his replacement appointed by the mayor was just elected in her own right um, last Tuesday. I remember one article you wrote about a guy who was, I think he was moving um, or at least moving some stuff and he had his stuff in his uh, van and it got ripped off and then uh, he chased it down. He essentially solved the crime, right? There was no (laughs) violence involved. And then he just kept calling the police. Could you please come and whatever, write it up so we can officially close this? And they, they just were uninterested in doing that basic function. That's been a huge theme of mine too, to be fair, which I've pointed out many times. It wasn't all the district attorney's fault the police department has been just sort of MIA. It's almost like we don't have a police department. A lot of people speculate they're on a wildcat strike, although their union leader and the police chief say, don't, definitely not true. They're working really hard. Although doesn't some recent poll or don't the recent data show that they started to arrest more people since Chasa was recalled and uh, Brooke Jenkins, the new DA, got in power? Yeah. um, On traffic enforcement, that entirely disappeared. The entire police force was issuing 10 tickets a day um, <laughs> So, for speeding. How many members of the SFPD are there? Oh, many hundreds. The traffic department alone had 45. And so 45 guys together, and this is their whole job, were issuing 10 tickets. <laughs> well, but if you've ever been to San Francisco, people just don't ever park where they shouldn't. Uh, uh-huh. We should all know that. <laughs> yeah. No one's ever been parked in a loading zone in the whole city. Now, it is true that San Francisco has, what, 16 murders? Very, very low, right? It's higher than that, but yeah, it is low. Um, Violent crime has been low and remained low. And what people are really mad about is the drug dealing and the property crime. But my point is you could write an article every day about a crime, a bad crime, and give the impression that crime is much worse than it is. Or you could write articles that highlight uh, certain aspects of what people are thinking and give more of a, you know, well-rounded, if not totally exculpatory for the uh, Boudin regime. So how do you decide what to do and what's fair and how much do you factor in the criticism? Because you want to gird yourself from all the brickbats you're going to take, but at the same time, you as a columnist who are trying to be responsive to what the readers and citizens are seeing have to be somewhat open to criticism. Right. I really tried to balance that. I wrote um, even more about the SFPD falling down on on the job than I did about the DA, but I definitely did both because for any criminal justice system to work, you need the police and the DA working, you know, hard and rowing in the same direction. And that has not been the case at all. So, um, yeah, that that instance you were talking about, this guy had a van full of stuff stolen from in front of his house, found the van with people inside of it, saw all of his stuff in the back, plus tons of other stuff that looked um, stolen. The van itself appeared to be stolen. 
and called the cops and they came and they saw all this evidence right in front of their faces and then they just left. <laughs> I mean, this happens a lot. I wrote about a guy caught stealing a catalytic converter. Um, there were witnesses. They called 911 as it was happening. The cops came. The guy was still there. They let him walk away. This is just again and again and again. So I just try to find stories that are interesting and kind of make you say, wait, what? <laughs> um, and fun to read, but also that you know represent what's going on in San Francisco. Do you ever find people agreeing with you, maybe outside of San Francisco or highlighting a column in the service of a broader ideological movement that maybe frightens or appalls you? Yeah. um, Some of the stuff I write about can easily make its way to Fox News. And, you know, then they spin it to like, oh, the apocalypse has arrived in San Francisco. And that's not the way it is. Like, I'm still living here. I'm raising my kids here. I love it as a a regular resident in most cases. Um, You know, there's great things about San Francisco, Um, small businesses, parks, the beauty of it, the beaches, nature, like there's just so much good here. And then when they just only focus on the bad. Um, I should mention here, I should plug, I have a podcast that comes out every Friday called Total SF. And we, my colleague Peter Hartlob and I co-host it together. And that's where we really focus on the good stuff. So I really try to balance, you know, the wonder and whimsy and beauty of San Francisco with what isn't working too, because I think that that is the best and most accurate, you know, representation of this city that has a lot of great stuff and also a lot of flaws. Do you take the instances where Fox News or others, maybe even people within San Francisco who quote you, and don't quote you out of context, but quote you in a service for an agenda that you don't particularly agree with. Does that make you self-reflect and say, could I have phrased it better? Or do you say people are just going to do that? Um, I've had people say that I'm too optimistic and Uh, there's this one person who's always calling me Cinderella on Twitter. (laughs) She thinks that I'm just like, oh, look at this magical city. But then other people are saying, um, you're so negative. You only ever talk about the bad stuff. So since I hear both sides, I kind of think I'm probably doing a good job. Heather Knight is a columnist working out of City Hall, covering everything from politics to homelessness to family flight and the quirks of living in one of the most fascinating cities in the world. Her podcast is The Chronicle's Total SF Podcast. She keeps me subscribed. Thanks so much, Heather. (laughs) Thank you. And now the spiel. I'm as big a World Cup watcher as the next guy, provided the next guy isn't Brazilian, Argentine, English, Welsh, German, Croatian. Okay, as long as the next guy is maybe Finnish or Mongolian, two countries aside from the U.S. where soccer isn't a top four sport. So I watched the World Cup, the most joyous aspects of which is the creativity, flair, and celebration of the Brazilians. The Ghanaians are good. The Spanish slaughtered the Costa Ricans, but less literally than when Columbus landed there in 1508. But for all the joy and transcendence of the brilliant play of the scorers, there is an equal and opposite force in this World Cup, VAR, the Video Assisted Review. Now, some sports have relied on video to check their work to good effect. Tennis's Hawkeye system is best in class. The NBA's tiresome checking of replay to determine possession in a 122-88 game, less enjoyable. But VAR in this World Cup has proven to be a less likable character than the host Qataris themselves, or even than Uruguay forward Luis Suarez, whose penchant for biting opponents, to some extent, marred the last World Cup. Today's game between Brazil and Switzerland, a scoreless, though not 
uninteresting tie for about 63 minutes. By the way, you get a lot of soccer cred by talking about how rewarding scoreless ties are. Anyway, Brazilian sniper Vinicius took a pass in the Swiss zone, drew out the goalkeeper, and cleanly deposited a shot in the back of the net. As well have a run, and Vinicius Jr. is having a run, and that is what he can do. Vinicius Jr., the breakthrough for Brazil. Cue celebration. Salsa music, fans weeping, flags flying, players mobbing their teammate. It went on uninterrupted for minutes on end. Catharsis, delivery, glory. Vinicius always rewards. Await. That stands for VAR. And we go back to the video, and all of a sudden, the announcers are breaking down the beautiful game like they're talking about Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. Yeah, he's saying, I think I passed the ball. Well, here's a look at it. Richarlison just lazy getting back on side, really. And you can see Akers in behind, and then the ball pounces free, glances through midfield. So he makes a play on it, and that's why he becomes an influential character in this buildup. Now, a true soccer fan, certainly a Swiss soccer fan, would say that was offsides. He should not have been allowed to score. And indeed, he wasn't. But it's an illustration of just actually half my point. There are some video overturns that literally just show a player's elbow or maybe even just the flappy, inelastic part of the elbow inching, sorry, metric system here, millimetering past the defender to what is technically an offside situation. So, like I said, technically it's offside, but you can't call something offside if the offensive player had just exfoliated the night before. No human referee would possibly call that offside. A lack of humanity defines the overall aesthetic of the VAR experience, too. The reviews are displayed on the screen, the TV screen, and players are rendered as poorly drawn video game, maybe 64-bit blobs. It looks kind of like the 80s movie version of a dystopian future where we have a functionary in mission control beckoning over his supervisor. Sir, look at this. There's a security breach that the computer picked up in Sector 11. And we see some cartoon on the screen that might be Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's how VAR looks when it's displayed during the World Cup. Soccer is a sport of impressionistic flair. It has stylistic diversity. It, and this is alone, I think, among the sports where the actual time of play is somewhat subjective. The referee won't blow the whistle to end the game if there's an important play going on. Soccer, which awards its great tournaments to criminals who try to charm you into thinking otherwise, whose procedures for granting its premier event are as negotiable as a suitcase full of euros or a duffel bag stuffed with rubles. Soccer does not benefit from the insertion of extreme, by-the-book, no-room-for-interpretation strictures. And it certainly doesn't need less scoring, but even when VAR nails it, as it nailed the Brazilian hero engaged in a man-versus-nature battle with the antagonist, the lag between celebration and enforcement, it's the absolute antithesis of enjoyment. Because this sport, all sport really, is A, a non-fictional event. It's true. It should be adjudicated justly. But more importantly, and why we care, it's an entertainment enterprise. And it should be conducted with an eye on excitement. 
Perhaps the greatest moment in World Cup history resulted from a referee's mistake. Diego Maradona punched a ball into the net. They gave the moment a lyrical nickname, La Mano de Dios, the hand of God. By the way, two weeks ago, that very punch ball was auctioned off. It sold for $2.4 million. And who owned the ball? The referee, the guy who was refereeing the game not well, the guy who missed the key call. Is him owning the ball in keeping with the rules? The very rules he failed to observe? I mean, he says yes. Okay, we could argue about it. FIFA seems to have lightly disagreed on that point. But so what? It's soccer. There is always room for debate and interpretation. By letter of the law, none of this may have been just, but it was in keeping with the spirit, the spirit of the entire sport. They knew not to challenge the decision on a technicality which is all that I'm arguing as regards VAR. Don't let persnickety literalism be the enemy of joy, flair, and celebration. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Um, Peru, G Peru, do Peru, to quote the Brazilians. Thanks for listening. Try to work something.